Shit happens. Bad shit, good shit, crazy shit. And it usually happens when we least expect it. So tune into the Shit That Happens To Me podcast and hear me and everyone I meet tell their shitty stories. You'll laugh, you'll cry. You probably won't cry. Why would you cry? These are mostly funny stories. You'll learn a few lessons. Probably not. It's definitely not that kind of podcast. But you will have a great time. Honestly, you can't make this shit up. How are you doing, Stacy? Hi. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. good. No complaints. Good. So David and Tom are Hollywood historians who have written two books based on their more than 250 show business celebrity interviews. So the first book is called, is that the first book? Yes. Real to Real. And the second book is called Hollywood Heyday. So it's, I, I'm so excited because celebrities are one of my favorite things to talk about. So um, everyone should go out and get the books right away um, if you haven't already. But tell me how, how the two of you got interested in doing this and, and what exactly, like you had some like, chutzpah, to coin a Yiddish term, um, in this process. So tell me about that. Well, and you're right, Stacey, um, when you say 250 celebrities, the 75 that are in Hollywood heyday, which is the one that's still in print and on Amazon versus Real the Real, which isn't, is um, that most of the 75 in there are famously dead celebrities. Um, but yeah. Tom and I, were, we both grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. And um, we got to know each other in middle school. And we really got to know each other when our parents both um, independently took us to see the 1974 movie, That's Entertainment, which was the compilation of all those great MGM musical clips. And it really was an eye-opening experience for me and Tom because it was really our first exposure to people like Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly and Judy Garland and all of these great artists and the unique American art form, the Hollywood musical. And so Tom and I at middle school compared right. notes having had a similar, yeah. Is, did someone interrupt me? Oh, am I on a roll? Someone said, I no, thought someone sorry. Said, okay, no problem. So anyways, <laughs> Tom and I compared notes. And um, so what happened was we were just, we were 15, 16 years old at the time. And we didn't just want to see the clips of these movie musicals. We wanted to see these films in their entirety and really dive into this whole classic Hollywood thing. So Tom and I started renting these films in 16 millimeter format because there was no v there was no video, there was no Turner Classic Movies, no DVDs. It was really the only way to see them. So we would rent them and we would borrow the 16 millimeter Bell and Howell projector from the St. Paul JCC. And we would schlep these movies to uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul area nursing homes. And that's really how it all started. And Tom and I had enough chutzpah or just dumb luck to get some articles written about our venture called, not surprisingly, we called it Films on Wheels. And um, we started showing these movies. And then we started getting some local media attention for this. And then at 18, we were in um, graduating high school in St. Paul. And that fall, we were going to start at the University of Minnesota. And we thought, wow, we've seen all these films. We're learning a lot. But yet some of these golden age stars were in their golden years, but they were still very much with us. Was there any chance that they would see these two 18-year-olds from St. Paul? So Tom and I started a snail mail letter writing campaign to Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. 
And lo and behold, both responded and consented to see us in Los Angeles. Okay. And our, our first trip of many was in the summer of 78. And I'll, I'll hand it off to Tom, who can talk about those transformational interviews and how it paved the way for hundreds more. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, it was interesting. Go ahead, Tom. We, Let's hear it. Okay. It was interesting. We, uh, as Dave said, we, we had done the snail mail campaign with a stair uh, secretary and Gene Kelly's secretary. And for two years, we kept getting, you know, sort of they're busy, they'll never be able to see you. And then within a week of each other, right before we graduated, they said, we'll both see you when you come to LA, if you could come like in a certain time span, in, like in June. So we went out there and, uh, you know, it was just great. We stayed at this budgetel that's still there on Doheny and Santa Monica. It's called the Beverly Terrace Motor Hotel. I think we had uh, mm-hmm. uh, our nightly rate was 27 bucks a night. I went in, I went past, past there uh, recently and it was $250 a night now. So it's it's gone up like everything oh else. Oh my goodness. Crazy. I hope they clean the and, uh, mm-hmm. Exactly. So we went, you know, we, we saw a stare at, in his office on uh, 94, 05 Brighton Way, that's where his office was, and we took a picture with him, a little Polaroid that we wanted as a keepsake, and little did we know that later on when we were trying to get interviews with Jimmy Cagney and other people, that that would be our Willy Wonka golden ticket into all these other interviews, yeah. with our picture with Astaire, because it was our it was our license into all these other homes, because Astaire was so universally revered by everyone that with this sort of, you know, photographic proof that we were able to provide, they said, well, if Fred saw you, I'd see you, you know, so it, it really helped. And then we, we uh, talked with uh, Gene Kelly at his house on uh, in 7, 725 North Rodeo Drive and spent a great, you know, afternoon with him in his house. He was a little more stern than, than Fred was. He was kind of a he had taught dance classes in Pittsburgh in the 30s. So he was always sort of a teacher. He came across that way. And uh, I remember he mispro- I, I mispronounced the Cannes Film Festival. I don't know if I mispronounced it, but Gene thought I did. So he sort of corrected my French pronunciation, which was funny. But Fred, he was just, in, in complete contrast, he was such a sweetheart. He was exactly like he is in almost every film you see him, just shy, retiring, just the sweetest guy he even did a little dance step in his chair for us and uh talked all about how <laughs> they filmed that around the in in royal wedding that around the uh room dance that he does yes. on the ceiling and the walls he explained how that was filmed and he was he really put us at ease because we were really kind of uptight about seeing fred you know he's a legend and gene too so but they were just great it's transformational interviews as dave and Stacy, we all that we invested for the one and only time in our life then in suits and ties because we wanted yeah. to afford these <laughs> golden age stars what we thought was the respect sure. that they deserved. And as Tom said, Fred Astaire was not only unassuming, I think he was totally unaware of his genius, you know. And hmm. you know, people say, What was it like sitting with Fred Astaire? Well, he was 77, 79 at the time, and it was sort of like sitting with your grandfather because. You know, here you are yeah. with the greatest dancer in the history of motion pictures and one of the greatest artists of any time. And he was just so unassuming um, and put you yeah. at ease. 
And as Tom said, that photo with Astaire led to just a cascade. And Tom and I started writing for the Minnesota Daily, which was the college newspaper at the University of Minnesota. So here were two young guys that were introducing younger stars to a college age audience. And so, yeah, we didn't bat 1,000. We definitely had people that declined for one reason or other. But we were extremely successful using snail mail. And between 78 and 83, we interviewed about 75 celebrities. In the 90s, Tom and I, after college, while we both were full-time working, we renewed our collaboration, went out to Los Angeles and picked up a lot of stars that were still golden age, but they were still with us. People like Rod Steiger, Janet Lee, um, Leslie Caron, um, Andre Previn, and people like that. And those are many of the names, not counting Milton Berle and Bob Hope and um, Mel Brooks and all these people that make up the 75 interviews in Hollywood heyday. Mm-hmm. So I have so many reactions to what you, what you said. So first I'll start with, I just read in the book, the part about Fred Astaire and how they did that scene. So it's a very iconic scene where he starts, he's dancing around the room and he starts dancing like up the wall and on the ceiling. And it's rather remarkable, even for the times, you know, to yeah. have the, that kind of effect because it looks very seamless And he talks about, I'm not sure I'll be able to find it that quickly in the book, but he talks about how he never, his feet never left the ground, but the cameraman, it was like a, he had like a rolling, um, like, Like what was it, like a A rolling. Spare room was actually placed in a barrel and turned and Fred met the walls and the, the ceiling as it did. Now, I should mention that one of the interview subjects in the book that we actually had two interviews was uh, the director, Stanley Donnan. And Stanley Donnan uh-huh. um, co-directed Singing in the Rain and On the Town with Gene Kelly and idolized Astaire. And Royal Wedding was his first film di- solo directorial effort. He went on to direct some wonderful films. But 30-some years after he did that, and again, there were no special effects back then, no CGI, he, um, he also directed and choreographed Lionel, um, Lionel, what is his name? Lionel Richie. That's an, you know, the dancing on the ceiling video that was very famous yeah. that Lionel yeah. Richie did. Right. Same director and basically the same technology. It makes me wonder because I don't know if you've ever seen um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was on SNL once and he did a whole shtick, um, a whole dance routine called, with on Make Him Laugh, which is Fred Astaire did that. Um, but he also, Donald O'Connor, that's right. Yes, you're right. Um, but he danced on the, on the wall and the ceiling. So it makes me wonder how they did that on SNL anyway. So, so that was really great. Um, I, I, the other thing that really interests me is so now being a podcaster, trying to get. Um, guests, right? It's probably one of the most challenging things to do. And, um, you know, trying to, you know, get some celebrity guests also. And um, someone just told me that celebrities think of podcasters as like, wait, what did they tell me? Um, it's like doing like talk shows, but worse, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's not something they really look forward to. But even though it's a big thrill, you know, for like a podcaster to get a celebrity and I've tried so many different ways some people just say yes right away you two were just lovely you just said yes right away um I need a little clout 
like you're saying that picture of you in a stair. So when I when I interview people that are well known, like in the area, you know, I can say, oh, well, I interviewed this person already. But, you know, it's really challenging. So it's so remarkable um, that that you. You not only interviewed people, you like went into their homes. You were in Lucille Ball's home. That was like amazing. Tom, do you yeah, want to talk I a little bit that. about Lucy? Yeah. Yeah, no, I won't. Yeah, yeah. I don't need the prompt thing from both of you. No. Um, yeah. No, the thing, <laughs> uh, a big thing about it back then too, Stacey, was that these people, these Golden Age stars, like Dave said, they're, they were semi-retired. And they had time on their hands. I mean, you know, they were semi-retired. They weren't a lot, you know, working a lot. And they had been brought up in the studio system back in the 30s and 40s where they saw publicity as part of the job. It was like kind of an old habit yeah. that was still instilled with them. So even, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years on, these two goofy kids in suits coming in, you know, we're, you know, we were representing the, you know, different publications. They, they sat down, they talked to us. They, they gave us sort of, we gave them respect, but they gave what we were trying to do the respect that, that, you know, they could too. So it was sort of a, it, it was sort of a, you know, kind of a nice thing that way. And, uh, you know, as far as mm -hmm. Lucy goes, yeah, I can tell you that story. I can launch into it. Um, that was a crazy one. It was on, uh, you know, we interviewed her in 1979 at her house on uh, Roxbury Drive, which is where a lot of stars lived. Jimmy Stewart was her neighbor. The uh, Gershwins used to live there, Oscar Levant. And we walked up uh, her sidewalk to the door in our suits and ties. And, and right at that time, one of those those uh, Starline, Grayline Tours buses stopped. <laughs> And these people were catcalling us saying, who are these guys? They have the nerve to go up to our house, <laughs> Lucy's house, knock on the door, which we just, just done. And then we were let in, which was so funny. I didn't look back. Dave or I didn't yeah. look back, but I'm sure they were gobsmacked. That, you know, these two idiots were being let into the Lucy's house. We, of course, had an interview arranged with her. And she was sitting there. She yeah. had a kerchief around her head. She had her big Kit Kat dark sunglasses on orange hair, oranger than Donald Trump. It was crazy. And um, we sat down with her and she was smoking a cigarette, had her poodle in her, in her lap. And we launched into the interview with one of these things from that we got from Current Biography, which was in every library, these current biographies, they were like a world books. They were a reference source. And we had read that she had yeah. tried to run away from home, Jamestown, New York, where she grew up when she was like six, you know, to be a star on Broadway. And her parents found her at the edge of town. They brought her back. And it was a cute little story. So we kind of asked her a question about that, thinking it'll be an icebreaker. And she just completely got silent. She got really mad. She said, if I would have known you would have asked such probing questions, I would never have allowed you in my house. Dave and I were sort of flipped out. We didn't know what to do. I mean, we thought this is like our softball yeah. question. here. So we totally just kind of re reoriented ourselves and went on and to, to lucy's credit she no matter how much she was offended by it which we couldn't understand she she just sort of ignored that and then we went into other questions that we had about different things and it, and the interview was really great but we thought for a second we were yeah. going to get booted out of her house dave if you want to yeah. jump in yeah the thing to remember about lucy is that um, she was dead serious. There was no real humor. Um, she wasn't a joke teller. She wasn't on like George Burns was always on or Milton Berle was always on. 
Um, she was the first woman mogul, really, in the entertainment industry to break the glass ceiling. She and Desi started um, Desi Lou Productions and were responsible for shows like um, Mission Impossible and and The Untouchables and Star Trek and Mannix and things like that. So she was all business. And, um, you know, she just said, we asked her questions like how much of the show was ad-libbed. And she said, absolutely none of it. The writers knew our characters inside and out. We just came in. A little bit different than the new Aaron Sorkin um, movie that's on Amazon about Lucy and Ricky. Um, It really was a few things counter to everything she told us about the show, that she did not meddle, she did not ad-lib, and she also said only a handful of episodes were squishing grapes or pratfalls or pies in the face. Most of them were not slapstick, and she said the ones that were naturally flowed out of the storyline. So those were a little counter to what you saw maybe in that recent Amazon movie. Uh So... Who was your favorite interview? And you might each have different ones. And then I'll tell you which one I really, which ones I really enjoyed reading. But who were your favorite interviews? Well, Tom, you I, I would say, I, I, I will. Um, almost everyone were, were was unique in some certain respect. I mean, every almost everyone, even the ones that went south really quickly, were interesting. You know, like the like the uh, Lucy one, and there was our our first interview with Stanley Donnan was a fiasco. That was interesting, but I think probably the most the meatiest one for for just content was Rod Steiger. We interviewed him up on a, the terrace of his Malibu house, and uh, he was in a bathrobe. And it was about a two and a half hour interview. It was the most interview we ever we ever had with a star where we voluntarily we had to end it because it was getting so dark on his terrace we couldn't even see him. He was like pulsating in his oh, little white yeah. robe. But he had great great anecdotes about you know uh, uh, Gary Cooper and James Dean and a, and a really great one about Humphrey Bogart and his uh, the last film that he made, uh, The Harder They Fall where they starred together and he would, he had, he, and he did something kind of unique that we've never uh, faced with another interviewer when we would ask him different, like, you know, what his impressions were with different stars. He would say, turn off the tape recorder. And then he would strike this sort of Zen pose in his bathrobe and, 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 you know, think about it for like a minute and a half. And then he'd say, turn the recorder on. And he, he'd give this great spiel about like what it was like, you know, what, you know, some great anecdote about, Humphrey Bogart in his last film and, you know, uh, tearing up because he had had terminal cancer and he was in pain. And I mean, there were just amazing, amazing little screeds that he would give right off the cuff after he told us to turn off our tape recorder so he could think about it. So, I mean, uh, he was just great. He was really, really a, a really fascinating, interesting, deep interview. Yeah, wonderful. I would say from a substance standpoint, Tom's right on substance-wise. You know, of course, there's always going to be a fondness for Astaire and Kelly because they opened the door. Kelly, you know, several of the people in Hollywood Haiti and several of the celebrities were not one-and-done interviews. They started a 10-, 20-year correspondence and relationship. Gene Kelly had us um, back to his home just about two years before he passed away, and it it was like 20 years had not passed. It was like, oh... You know, here we were, what, 40 years old, and he said, oh, the college boys are back. It was like no time. (laughs) And, you know, then you look at someone like um, George Burns, like the sweetest man on earth, 
who saw Tom and I probably four different times um, up until he was about 97 years old, always warm, always funny, always quick witted. Um, you know, you got that. You have um, Ted Knight, you know, uh, from Ted, the Mary Tyler Moore show, an iconic character actor who was making Too Close for Comfort. We, we were with him. We went to lunch with him when they were um, had a lunch break. He said, yeah, you two are in college. If you have if you're, you come up short um, during your stay here, need some money, let me know. I'll be happy to you know help you out. Oh you know, God. Breakfast with Bob Newhart when he was doing his show at the Bel Air Hotel. And, you know, um, we had dinner at the Ginger Man restaurant with, owned, co-owned by Carol Connor as guests of James Cagney. Um, you know, oh just, just so many adventures, um, really just dozens of adventures and wonderful people. And Frank Capra, the legendary three-time Oscar-winning director of, you know, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, It's a Wonderful Life. Wonderful visit with him in um, near Palm Springs. Then we had a, a half day with him where we took him to the St. Paul Cathedral and brunch when he was in Minneapolis uh, about a year later. Um, so just incredible. And our interviews aren't just behind, you know, people in front of the camera, like Capra, the great director, yeah. Vincent Minnelli, we were with um, songwriters, the great and legendary and Kogi Carmichael, Harry Warren, three-time Oscar-winning songwriter, Livingston and Evans, three-time um, Oscar-winning songwriters. So there were a lot of people. And who? Sammy Khan. Oh, Sammy, Sammy Khan, four-time Oscar, Oscar winner, yes. So, and of course, we don't want to forget Bob Hope. Bob Hope was a very meaty interview for someone who wasn't known to give a lot of good interviews. He did a great, we had some really good insights from Bob Hope. Like what? Well, I mean, Bob Hope was a master at publicity. And what he would do whenever he had a television special, and admittedly, a lot of his later life TV specials were very lame. But what he would do is literally sit at his home and give every um, TV writer, that's when there were TV writers at all the newspapers, literally call them individually, give them 15, 20 minutes prior to every special and spend all the time. He was incredibly media friendly and savvy, but he never really did much except promote what he was promoting, whether it was TV or movie. When Tom and I saw him as college students, we saw him late at night after he had done his stage show at a suburban Minneapolis dinner theater or nightclub, I should say. And, you know, he talked seriously. He talked about gun control. This was right after Reagan had been shot. With um, And he talked about how he supports gun control. He supported Reagan. Um, he talked about how they were trying to get him to run for political office and how he really didn't want to do that. So it was really insightful, as was Charlton Heston, who we were with at his home in Beverly Hills on two different occasions. And we talked about politics and what he contributes yeah. when he go went on the road in support of political candidates. So it wasn't just frivolous promotion. You talk about today's right. stars. Today's stars, Stacey, go on late night television because they're contractually obligated and they're there to right. promote a TV show and movie. And you learn nothing other than them promoting their project. We got with these stars, dozens and dozens of them who had nothing to promote and just talk to us about a lot of different things. 
Well, I think when they're on late night television today, they they already know what the questions are going to be. They know what movie clip they're going to show. There are very few surprises. Um, even if they tell some cute story about their kid, they already know they're going to tell that story. But with with you two, it, it probably they had no idea. I don't know if you sent them the questions ahead of time. Clearly not nope. Lucy. Um, and so, you know, it was pretty off the cuff. And so... Yeah. yeah, and that's part of that's part of what we were talking about before too. Was that they were you know they were used to being interviewed. They had been interviewed half their lives for fifty years, and they welcomed it. You know, they welcomed. They we were never ever asked beforehand for a sheaf of questions. You know, what what, what are we going to discuss? Mm-hmm. It was a very casual conversations in their homes, at restaurants, you know, you know, in, in a park with Eli Wallach sitting on a park bench in New York. I mean, it was just, they, they, they were ready. I mean, they were ready. They had nothing to hide. And, you know, and that was how they, they, uh, they went off. They were just great, real meaty interviews. The Shit That Happens to Me podcast is now sponsored by COS, the leading manufacturer of high-quality headphones and speakers in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I just love my new COS headphones, and you will too. Whether you're in a Zoom meeting, listening to music, or recording a podcast, they're sure to have something to meet your needs. Follow them on social media for info and new product launches, and follow the Shit That Happens to Me podcast on social media for your chance to win some amazing COS products. So when was your last interview? Because I saw one, um, you interviewed George Hamilton in 2013, which really wasn't that long ago. So was he one of your last interviews? I think what we did, Stacy, is within the last, I'd say, eight years, 10 years, yeah, George Hamilton's example, the other ones in the book that were within the last 10 years were Leslie Caron sort of the, from huh? Gigi and an American in Paris fame, who's now 90. Um, we interviewed um, uh, Jack Carter, who was a famous comedian back in the 60s and 70s, and then um, Andre Previn. So there were, you know, there's a handful of people that we sort of picked up that Tom and I said, yeah, they're still fit under this sort of golden age classics, and we were able to pick them up over the last 10 years or so. Uh-huh. That's, and that's one really guy fun. that we uh, um, talked to that wrote the foreword was Robert Wagner. He was one of one of the yes. very last yeah. interviews, and he wanted to write the foreword. I mean, we didn't even ask him. He had volunteered to write it, and he was a great. A go- he was a golden age guy in the sense that from the 1930s onward, he lived in L.A. He, was, he, he moved to L.A. with his dad, who was a business executive in like the late 30s. So he, when he was a kid. So he grew up with all these Hollywood kids. Fred Astaire's uh, stepson was a, a real good friend of his. So he knew Cagney. He knew Astaire. He knew all these Golden Age people when they were making their movies back in the 30s and 40s. So, uh, you know, that was sort of our link with the RJ, as he likes to be called, uh, in that, you know, he was yeah. impressed with the fact that we were sort of had this weird, you know, he had the pedigree with them, but then we were able to kind of talk you know, uh, talk shop with him about all these stars because we had interviewed them. So he loved that. He was, he, he, and he was very impressed with that. And that's why he volunteered to do the, a real nice forward for us. He's a, he's a sweet guy. RJ's a great guy. Yeah. And he just turned 92. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I'll say that I really enjoyed, um, you know, Bob Newhart. Um, probably the reason I'm a psychologist is Bob Newhart and the Bob Newhart show. And I, um, and, you know, because I grew up in Chicago and see, and so seeing, you know, the Chicago background, I really identified with that growing up, like, oh, I can, I can be a psychologist in a high rise in Chicago. And so that was one of my favorite shows. And I really, I really um, liked what he said. I have that here. As it turned out, I have the distinction of being on television six years and never curing a patient. Mr. Carlin was probably worse off at the end of the show than at the beginning. So I thought that was really funny. And his whole like group therapy, you know, when they did group therapy together. I mean, that was just really classic. And he's still still around. He is. Yeah. 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 And the other person that's with us uh, is Eva Marie Saint. I believe she's 96 years Mm -hmm. old. And we, we had our second mm-hmm. interview with her, you talked about within the last 10 years as well. Yeah, I um, I really enjoyed reading, you know, the George Burns section. And I think w- one of the times he went there, there had just been like a little earthquake and you asked him about that. And he commented that that was his aerobic exercise. That was really cute. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he also talked a lot about vaudeville. We talked a lot about vaudeville, yeah. Stacy, and and I. There's a, a section in the book where he just rattled off. We asked him these questions about the St. Paul Orpheum Vaudeville Theater that dated back to 1906, and he had performed with Gracie, his wife, Gracie Allen, in the 20s. And we asked him all these questions, and he just he was so quick, and it's it's almost like a Q and A the way it's it's. In the book, his his answers yeah. to all these vaude, and they're all punchlines. They're really really funny. So he was v- extremely <laughs> quick witted right to the end. He was just great. Um, I'm pretty impressed. Um, just I don't know if you've um, had a chance to um, read Mel Brooks's autobiography. Um, I just listened to it recently, and he narrates it and. It, I mean, it, it appears as if he has like the most incredible memory of anyone I know. Like, I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday and he can remember every single thing he did, you know, so you know, and we, did we did interview Mel in his office in L.A. when he was um, promoting a film called Dracula Dead and Loving It. Um, we didn't feel it was meaty enough to make the 75 cut. Um, but, you know, he doesn't only I mean, and I read another book um, by Mel, a biography written by a local author, um, McGilligan, Patrick. But you said he has an, an amazing um, memory. Um, no, in due respect, he also has an amazing ego. <laughs> you know, I'll be real honest. Yeah, with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and but he is, you know, he's the eighth wonder of the world. He's amazing. And, um, you know, he, he's, he's a great talent and um, left us with some great movies. He, I would say that some of the stories he told didn't make him sound all that nice. You know, he told stories about having temper tantrums when he wasn't, you know, um, when he didn't win, you know, awards and things like that. So I I was, you know, rather surprised about that. But yeah, I enjoyed the book anyway. (laughs) You know, things like this bring up a lot of like nostalgia for people. You know, like just thinking about, you know, Bob Newhart or or Peter Falk, you know, Columbo was one of my favorite shows. And 
Can you talk about that a little bit? Just like why nostalgia is so important and why this book is, you know, so important for people? Well, I mean, I mean, it, it, it is very nostalgic. Anyone who will read this, especially people of a certain age, like our age or older and, and or younger people mm -hmm. that are really into old movies and that are TCM fans or whatever. This will really hit a responsive chord with them. And uh, I don't know. I, you know, nostalgia is great. It's, it's sort of like a comfort factor, you know, I mean, and. And really, a lot of these these stars, they harken back to a more innocent era. You know, it was, it was very, very, uh, you know, entertainment was pretty was PG or G rated. Most of the people that we uh, talked to, you know, they didn't make R rated movies. And, and it's uh, it's stuff. And they were real artists, too, especially the musical people. I mean, you watch those movies, you watch the Astaire, the Kelly, the Sid Charisse, the Vera Ellen numbers. I mean, they hold up today, you know, just as well as they did back in 1940 when they were filmed. I mean, that was what Bats Entertainment and, uh, you know, the, the film compilation was all about. It was extremely nostalgic, yeah. but it wasn't corny. I mean, right. there were some things that dated, but a lot of right. those numbers were just, they're, they're evergreen. They're great art mm -hmm. like that, great performance art like that will never, never uh, be dated. It's just great. So... I mean, uh, and, and, you know, with all the uh, stuff that's happening in the world, uh, you know, now and, 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 you know, it's sort of nice to have that comfort blanket of, of an earlier era that was innocent and that you, you, you know, that you can just watch. You can watch a whole movie. There won't be any major horrific surprises and it'll just be right. entertaining. And it'll give you a lift when you leave. It'll give you a lift when you leave the theater or you leave your you know, lazy boy. Sure. You know, Stacy, the slogan for That's Entertainment was, boy, do we need it now for the very reason Tom mentioned. We had gas lines. We had, um, the, you know, we had um, Watergate. We were just getting off the Vietnam War. Things were a mess. Well, here we are in 2022. I think you can make the same case with what's going on right now in the world and in this country. Boy, do we need it now. And, you know, when yeah. I do some talks, I often say, if everyone on this planet was given a copy, a, C, a DVD of Singing in the Rain and put it in and played it, maybe we'd actually have a friendlier planet right now. And you know, I'm teaching film history at Marquette University to a lot of young people. And again, talk about nostalgia. I mean, the, you know, a name like, um, for example, we've just recently covered the Blacklist and Marlon Brando and On the Waterfront. You know, Brando is a pop cultural icon, yet it's probably safe to say that with the 60 students, I introduced him for the first time to probably 58 yes. out of 60. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, we're talking. No, Stacey, one other thing. And this has, yeah, this has some sort of, uh, you know, facility with what you do, your, your psychology stuff. When, when we interviewed um, Rod Steiger, he had had problems with depression, he said. He had had a, you know, he had a depressive personality, and he had a little, like, charm around his neck, and it was of a, 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 the Little Prince from the same Exupery novel, The Little Prince. And he said to us, right as we were leaving, you know, when he's brandishing this little, like, charm this little of The Little Prince, he says, I, I kind of like what Dave said earlier, expounding on that, 
I defy anyone to read St. Exupery's The Little Prince and not get a lift from that. If they're feeling really bad, if they're feeling depressed, read this book. They will feel better. So, I mean, even in, uh, you know, nostalgia for Rod Steiger was an earlier era. It was a book by St. Exupery who, you know, died in World War II. But so, you know, nostalgia it has its own epoch in every era for whoever you know however they feel with us it's films for sure you know for rod steiger books you know and i don't know if we'll ever get a younger audience to read something like hollywood heyday it'd be nice but the reality is hollywood heyday is sort of um a snapshot of 20th century entertainment now and they're in the relatively short form so they're easy to read pick up and read one or read two and, you know, we're tracing, as Tom said, vaudeville. We're tracing 20th century history from, from people who starred in vaudeville, Broadway, movies, and television up until really the 21st century. Yeah. And these stars could do everything. They had so many talents. They could act, they could sing, they could dance. So many of them become directors, producers, you know, they had so many talents, you know, they didn't just have one, you know, one little talent. So kind of really amazing. Right. In fact, that's Run what uh, Tony Curtis told us. Tony Curtis told us that yeah. too. He said that uh, when we were talking to him in his house, he said that back then, I mean, he would take an acting lesson if he wasn't making a movie or he'd take a fencing lesson or he'd take a horseback riding lesson. Back during the star system, back in the studio era, they had a battery. They had just an army of people where you could like learn stuff. You could learn, you know, you could learn how to fence. You could learn how gymnastics. You could learn how to box. I mean, it was like a finishing school for a lot of actors. So what you say these actors that were triple threats or singers, dancers, this or that. I mean, they, a lot of them learned that, you know, when they were working in the studio era in the thirties and forties. Now, some like it hot is another one of my all time favorite movies. And, um, Tony Curtis, um, said some, you know, I have really going to have to really think about this now. He said some like not very complimentary things about Marilyn Monroe while they were filming. You remember what he said? Do you want to you tell us about that? Well, he did. Yes, I remember he said. Well, yeah, that, he's, um, she couldn't. She, oh, she, <laughs> we got a little delay here. She said she, she, yeah. said she, she couldn't remember her lines. She was mm -hmm. always late and that she would play the actors against each other she would like pit tony curtis with jack lemon or jack lemon with billy wilder the director or vice versa but after discussing that he said i think that she was getting even for every guy who ever after and that's what yeah. he said and then yeah. he said i also want to dispel the misnomer that i said kissing her was like kissing hitler and he said uh -huh. that he was emphatic that he never said that and Tony Curtis repeats that in his autobiography. Now, his autobiography is highly entertaining and readable. I'm not sure what percent of it, percentage of it is actually true. Okay. <laughs> Boy. Um, I also enjoyed um, 
you know, like some things I didn't know, right? That, you know, information that, you know, you told us about. So Tippi Hedren, um, who starred in The Birds and is Melanie Griffith's mother, um, talked about filming that um, scene with all the birds and that originally they were all supposed to be, you know, like robotic birds. And then they came to her like, earlier in the day and said the they're not working you're gonna have to use we're gonna have to use real birds and um she that was terrifying and traumatic for her yeah it was i mean uh, you know no go ahead yeah she said that uh you know they tied and you can see in the the scene when she goes up into the attic which to me is one of the worst you know, I mean, Hitchcock is a master of suspense, but when she hears after this kamikaze bombardment attack of the birds on the, the house, she hears a thing in the attic, everyone's asleep, and she goes up to investigate it. I mean, I don't know about that, but that's suspe- <laughs> that uh, it strains ability there. But she went up, and, and they were all tied to her. These, uh, you know, crows and blackbirds were tied to her, so and they were, you know, they were live, so they were flipping around. And she was getting kind of pecked a little bit and scratched. And if you look at that scene, in certain parts of that scene, you can see the wire. You can see the little, like, uh, threads that are attached to the bird's, uh, you know, uh, the bird's feet, the legs. So, uh, and she said that she basically had a, she doesn't characterize it as a breakdown. She she just, she kind of flipped out. She had some sort of collapse where she didn't even remember going home that night. She just sort of was, and then she was in bed for, you know, two or three days and uh, trying to recover. But she just said it was, it, it was traumatic. It was just, you know, crazy. I can't even imagine. <laughs> and it's not like I'm afraid of birds, but to, if I had 20 birds, like, attached to me, I think I would be afraid wow. of birds after that. For sure. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Who are some of the people that, you know, like you tried and tried and tried and never agreed? Well, okay. Um, John Wayne. Um, we got a handwritten note from Henry Fonda saying he would have seen us. But he, when we were there, he was in New Hampshire filming on Golden Pond. We have a, a handwritten note from him. We have a handwritten note from Walter Matthau. Um, in his typical curmudgeon fashion, saying, yeah, I'm pretty much sick of interviews. I don't do them anymore. Um, so we do have handwritten <laughs> declines. Um, we always wanted to see Johnny Carson, but he was pretty reclusive. But we were able to um, see Ed McMahon in his dressing room at The Tonight Show. And um, producer Fred DeCordova, we had a relationship, with, a friendship with him as well. So, yeah, there's always going to be um, stars. We tried to see the Oscar-winning director, William Wyler, um, and he literally passed away when we were scheduled to see him. So, yeah, we oh, never batted no. a thousand, but, you know, we were pretty happy with who we did get. Yeah. Yeah. We, we did so, try uh, on a oh, – go ahead. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> well, we did try for Irving Berlin more than once. And, uh, you know, it, it would have been great. He was a, he's a huge – he was a huge uh, – idol of both Dave and, and mine, but we were never, he was in his nineties and he was totally a shut in. And I think we did get kind of close to getting one with him, but he, we, he just, he didn't give interviews to anybody. And also Frank Sinatra, we were like really close to getting something with him, but 
It just never, and, and Ira Gershwin, George Gershwin's brother. So there were, you know, there were people mm-hmm. that we tried, that we got close, but no cigar. So that's just the way it was, you know. So do you think you'll, like, are you still interested in interviewing people? Well, I mean, not contemporary yeah. stars. Um, Tom and I um, just um, submitted a manuscript for our next book, um, which will be published by the University of, Minis- um, University of Mississippi Press, and it's called Come On, Get Happy. It's the making of Summerstock, which was the 1950 MGM musical starring Judy Garland and Gene Kelly. It was Judy Garland's last ride, last film at MGM after this amazing 15-year tenure. And so we tell the backstory, and we have a forward by the great dancer, Tony Award-winning choreographer, Savion Glover. But we have um, a lot of wonderful people that have worked with us on the project, Michael Feinstein, Lorna Luft, Judy Garland's um, daughter, um, Mario Cantone, um, I miss him, uh, Marilyn Michaels, uh, Ben Vereen, Tommy Toon. They all gave us time, interviews within wow. the last three years. This is a project that's been three years in the making. It's in the pipeline. We'll be happy to come back when it's published. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Tell me, um, you know, this must have cost money for you to, you know, like from buying your first suits to, you know, traveling to New York and L.A. back and forth and back and forth, you know, over all of these years, um, you know, like. And time, just the time away from your families and things like that. How, how did you manage all that? Well, when we first started, uh, we, as, you know, 18-year-old high school uh, graduates, we were working at the Metropolitan uh, Stadium as vendors, beer vendors, hot dog vendors. And that's how we financed the first few trips. We, it was just on, uh, you know, uh, on the pay that we made from vending, you know, out at Met Stadium. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, later on, we, you know, we just, we found the time, you know, usually it was on winter breaks or, or vacations or whatever. We'd, uh, we'd slot some time in to, to, you know, see these people and to make time, you know, we, the, the choreography between when we were able to see them and when they were able to see us, that was the tricky part, you know, trying to kind of coordinate mm-hmm. schedules. That was always the toughest part, you know, but once we got, you know, uh, the thumbs up from these people with letters and, and contact numbers and a time to meet them. Then they almost 99% of them came off. There was very rarely would we get a cancellation from some of these older stars once they were set, which is a lot different from uh, younger stars. We, you know, they, they'll cancel at the last minute. They don't care. So, yeah. Well, and they were also, you know, as Tom mentioned, the first place was 27 bucks a night. Um, we did a three-week trip during college and stayed at a place that had weekly rates and a little kitchenette. So literally, we would get food at the local grocery store and you know set out smoke alarms by cooking um, and things like that. We, we couldn't we couldn't rent a car the first couple of trips. We walked, we took cabs, we took buses, which of course in LA is is crazy. But I always say that whether it's these books or all of the work that we've done over the last forty-five years, I always use this term. It's a labor of love. You know, it's sure. been um, it, it's been close to our heart. It's been not a um, it's it's been a hobby that, we, you know, we, we've been able to indulge ourselves in over 45 years. And, uh, you know, it was never about enriching ourselves on this. It was 
doing, you know, following what we wanted to do. Right, right. And did you would, you know, I saw recently you just talked about Michael Feinstein. So I saw a picture you posted with you and Kathy, David, your wife, Kathy, that I know, and and Michael Feinstein. And so did you bring like partners with you ever on any of these trips? Did did they get to meet the celebrities? No, I mean, Tom and I did pretty uh, much everything. When we we, uh, interviewed Debbie Reynolds, we took, uh, I was married at the time, and we took our wives to, uh, you know, see her show in Vegas when she had a showroom. And then we got a tour of the uh, museum that she had, you know, her famous museum that she was never able to endow, you know, to never able to get anyone to really endow it to, uh, you know, underwrite it. So she she ended up selling all these classic Hollywood, you know, this memorabilia. And, and uh, you know, this was years before now the new Hollywood Museum that would have killed to have all these uh, things that she had. So it was about 20 years too, too early for that. But so, yeah, we would bring them, but not on a lot. Dave and I usually, it was, we, we just did them in tandem with each other. Yeah, I mean, it was very rare where we bring spouses or anyone else for that matter. I remember when Kathy and I, um, 35 years ago, we were uh, after we were married, we went to Hawaii for our honeymoon, but we also stopped in L.A. for a couple of days and, you know, paid a call on George Burns, the, my wife and I, and stuff like that. But, yeah, it was um, – and in the case of Feinstein, he had already contributed to our latest book, and so he wanted – we both – I said, you know, I'd love to meet you, which we did. And then after our meeting, he wrote a, a wonderful endorsement for the book that would be on the back jacket of the book cover. Well, if you ever need some random podcaster to come with you to meet and, you know, for any future interviews, you know, let me know. because <laughs> I, I, w- I would love that. Um, we'll let uh, you know. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> um, and so you know, lots of traveling between the two of you over so many years, you know, you've had this, you know, friendship just over like watching this movie together. It's really kind of sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did you ever like argue about anything? Like, well, yeah. I don't want to go see this person or that person. No, we never had a disagreement on who to see or whatever. I think we've always been on the same page and we've had some really bizarre things like, interviewing the net fabre when she was literally on her deathbed you know some and, you know oh, no. very, strange, very strange stuff but yeah i mean you look at the greatest you know um, bracket and wilder who collaborated as writers on some of the great movies um did they have feuds do they have arguments do they have disputes of course i wouldn't say you know tom and i have never talked about a divorce so to speak but you know have we we've been pretty much on the same page but i mean disagreements or a, a different way to do something is a normal part of any relationship whether it's a working relationship or a personal relationship sure of course yeah tom you agree with that <laughs> of course he does oh, no, no, that, that's yeah true. no of uh, yeah i'm under contract to say that uh you know yes i agree no it's no what dave said is yeah. true we had Minor, minor disagreements, but 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 the overarching thing about that, Stacy, is that it's been so much fun to have a collaborator when you've interviewed all yeah. these people because we have three thousand stories 
in jokes, all these weird little things that we shared over the course of 45 years that it wouldn't have been as rich if we either of us were on our own. It would all be like, oh, I have right. this knowledge. Or, you know, I don't remember what happened uh, with this star at this time. Dave, do you remember it? Yeah, I did remember. We did this, this, this. And then so we can kind of jog each other and remember stuff and, and just remember how much fun we had over the, the course of, a, you yeah. know, a career. And, and, and I think George S. Kaufman said once, it's a great line, it's always great to have company when you're facing a blank page, you know, when you have to write something. Yeah, it's always sure. great to have there with you that you can kind of bounce stuff off so it's been a it's been a very rewarding and enriching you know partnership professional partnership that way the only melancholy aspect is it goes too quickly it's you know the yeah. 40 plus years you know seems like yesterday mm-hmm. what was that what were you showing us dave you had pulled out like some tape tom and i is, have dozens or hundreds of cassette tapes from all yeah. of our interviews some of them um have been digitized we're not we're it's a somewhat of a long costly process but eventually we're going to get to that too just we got to digitize mm-hmm. everything yeah right so just just my last question is you said that the first was it the first interview that was a disaster no no the first was interview, what was the one that was a, well, the Stanley Donovan interview. Yeah, tell me, what was the disaster about that, if you don't mind? Oh, no, that's fine. I mean, it's, you know, it'll be, it's sort of a blue tale that I'm going to tell here, but we, uh, he lived in Bel Air, and it was 1980, and we drove up, we could drive at that point, we were legal to drive in LA, we drove up to his house, it was a 9 a.m. interview, and we were in our suits, and we were, we were showed, ushered into his den, which was just filled with memorabilia. It was just great, his den. And he was, a very two, he was married at that time to Yvette Mimieux, who's an actress who just passed away <laughs> recently. She was, like, she was considered a sex kitten, sort of the French sex kitten back in the 60s. And she came in. They, there were these double French doors. She came in, and she was completely nude. She came in from the shower or something and didn't know we were <laughs> in his house. She screamed, slammed the door, (coughs) walked back. Now we can hear her arguing with Stanley. You know, we're sitting on on the couch waiting for Stanley to come in. We hadn't met him yet. She's pissed off. She's ripping him a new one. And then he comes in and he's all mad at us for, you know, seeing his wife nude when we were, I mean, it wasn't like we were peeking around the shower stall. We were in his den where we were supposed to be. Yeah. So, he, so everything was monosyllabic. Every interview, every every question, we'd be, "What was it like working with Gene Kelly?" Fine. Next question. You know, he he was just he was kind of a shit. You know, so yeah. you know, I mean, you know, and so we eventually asked him a, a question about I think the Farrah Fawcett movie, Saturn Five, I think, or three. And it was a bomb. It was this, the movie had just made. It, it bombed at the box office. And we said, well, you know, we were kind of getting pissed because he's being such a dick. Sorry. And and so, you know, he said, well, it wasn't a bomb. I don't know where you got that information. That's erroneous. So we said, well, we can send you <coughs> we can send you the box office stuff that we've seen in Variety. Yeah. So he said, I'm not happy with your question. So it's all right. And so we left, you know, and we were like, Jesus, man. I yeah. mean, it wasn't really even an interview much. I mean, it was just this contentious thing. 
But then Dave can pick up. Yeah. We saw him like 30, 40, 35 years later, and it was a completely different sort of interview. He had, we saw him in New York. He was um, dating Elaine May at the time. And Stanley just died about three years ago at age 94. He was the last of the great MGM musical directors. So, of course, he had mellowed. And thankfully, he did not remember our earlier meeting of 35-plus years earlier. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I think between the both of them, and they're both chronicled in Hollywood heyday, uh, you know, we actually got some, I would say, some tangible, interesting information from him. But, again, you know, he was almost 90 years old at the time, and he had mellowed. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, but I mean, you did get, like, you know, quite the sight, though, out of that first interview, so. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Two college <laughs> yeah. yeah, we were happy with that. Yeah, for two 18-year-old, you know, or so boys, like, that must have been yeah. something. It was a nice takeaway. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, <laughs> We didn't have our cameras ready, though. That was a... No, you didn't have your iPhones on you in 1980. Yeah. Oh, man, oh, man. Well, yeah. um, I could talk about this. I could talk about this forever, honestly. It's been so much fun to talk to you, too. And I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories. And everyone should totally, like, first of all, check out, like, the movie. I, I hope you can still get that movie, That's Entertainment. And I think there's a That's Entertainment 2 also. Yeah, um, okay, yeah. So those were lots of fun. But definitely check out the the books, um, Real to Real, Hollywood Heyday, and Su Summerstock. What's the third one going to be called? So, um, um, come on, get happy, the making of Summerstock. Come on, get happy. The yeah. University of Mississippi Press, but we do not have a public publication date as of yet. Okay. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned for that. Um, thanks again for uh, coming on and have a good um, rest of your day, okay? Thanks, Stacy, for having right. us. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Thanks for listening to my shit. I really appreciate it. Come back and hear more shit next time on the Shit That Happens to Me podcast. Do you think I've said shit enough for one podcast episode? Tune in next time to the Shit That Happens to Me podcast. <laughs> you got it, baby! Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.